Welcome to the FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. President-elect Trump has spoken. Mass deportation of illegal aliens will happen. That's what he told Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes the other night. And because over the decades, 60 Minutes has transcended its origins as a news program and become a quasi-official channel for American political leaders to speak their version of truth to the people, we have to take him at his word. Trump acknowledged the deportations would not quite be on the scale he promised. 11 million people is now down to 3 million, but they would be gone. This is what he told Stahl. What we are going to do is get the people that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers, we have a lot of these people, probably 2 million, could be even 3 million, we're getting them out of our country, or we're going to incarcerate. Stahl did not query where he came up with the figure of 2 to 3 million illegal immigrants being in gangs or drug dealers, so we'll just have to take his word for it. Trump is in the magical thinking phase of his transition to power. I imagine most president-elects go through it. You win. Euphoria. You think you've got the power to bring change, and then slowly but surely you realize you can't just do what you want. But for the moment, the president-elect can still be indulged in magical thinking, and since he is a man of his word, I have been doing some realistic thinking about how he might be able to accomplish his deportation goal. What are the logistics required to move that larger number of people without creating chaos for the rest of us? Think for a second of how long it takes for traffic and public transport to clear after a football game, with maybe 60,000 people in attendance, or the lines at passport control, when a jumbo jet disgorges 300 people into America. You're talking about massive inconvenience. Now, think of moving 3 million people. How can it be done? What are the historical precedents for this kind of massive, organized population shift? Can we learn anything about the logistics of alien resettlement from the past? Here's one example. Hungary, spring 1944. The Germans occupied the country in March of that year, and within days Adolf Eichmann arrived in Budapest with a few hundred SS officers. They had a single task, transport the Jewish population of Hungary to Auschwitz. This was no easy trick. Hungary had the largest Jewish population remaining in Europe at that point, around 800,000 people. Many Jews lived in the countryside, and they needed to be rounded up, placed in central holding areas, bureaucratically documented, and then moved on. At the other end of the resettlement process, there needed to be a reception area for the transports. This put a limit on how many could be sent at any one time. By June, everything was organized. Four trains a day, carrying 3,000 Jews each, left for Auschwitz. In just under two months, around 440,000 Jews had been deported. Now, there are limits to what we can learn from this. The president-elect and his supporters aren't advocating that the journey end for America's illegal immigrants the way the journey to Auschwitz ended for those 440,000 Hungarian Jews. 90% were murdered upon arrival. But there are a couple of lessons. First, the standing room only conditions on the transport trains are not possible to recreate today. Deportees will have to get a seat. There would be a public outcry if they didn't. Currently, the standard long distance Amtrak car has 60 seats. These railway cars could, in theory, be retrofitted to 80 or 90 seats, but not much more than that. 
There are also a limited number of train carriages available. Thanks to the short-sightedness of successive Congresses, the railway network only has rolling stock of around 400 engines and 1,500 cars. The average Northeast Corridor train has eight coaches. Now, eight coaches, 90 people each, 720 people per train, and the average journey time from New York to El Paso is three days, according to Google. Well, you can do the math about how long it would take to get hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million illegal immigrants from the northern parts of the U.S. to the border with Mexico. I mention railroads first because they're obviously the cheapest way to transport people and will not block the nation's roads, which would have a terrible knock-on effects on regular commerce. I suppose you could fit out fleets of C-130 Hercules transport planes to carry people back south of the border, but there are limited numbers of runways where these big beasts can land, and military use must have priority. The other lesson to be learned from the transport of Hungarian Jewry is that the authorities are reliant on local people for help in rounding up deportees. Eichmann, as I said, had no more than a few hundred SS officers under his command to implement this mass movement of people. In order to make it happen, he required the services of local militia types from the anti-Semitic Arrow Cross Party. Arrow Cross members also made up a large part of local law enforcement, and their sympathizers were everywhere. These people were enthusiastic Jew hunters. Getting local buy-in clearly is important to large population removals. And while there are parts of America I have visited where it's possible to imagine people coming out to help the authorities round up their neighbors, I think there are far fewer than the president-elect and his top advisor Stephen Bannon think. An example from American history is perhaps more apposite than the fate of the Jews of Hungary. The removal of the Cherokee Nation from its ancestral homeland in the American South and its long trek along the Trail of Tears. This was a policy put in place by Andrew Jackson. President-elect Trump has been compared to Old Hickory by none other than former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. The Indian Removal Act was passed by Congress in 1830. It authorized the removal of the various tribes of the South, Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole, Creek, and Chickasaw, to west of the Mississippi. The lessons from this for the president-elect are easier said than done. Indian population transfer didn't happen overnight. There were court challenges to the Indian Removal Act. Large sums of money had to be paid to those being forced to go west. In 1838, a year after Jackson had left office, there were still thousands of Cherokee living in the south. They had to be rounded up and force-marched west of the Mississippi. That large group, on foot, moved slowly. 4,000 Cherokee died during the march. Which brings me to the other lesson from this event. There was no mass media in 1838, and obviously no internet swamped with live streams of unfiltered images of people dying. Imagine if CNN or even Fox was broadcasting pictures of people suffering as the Cherokee did 24-7. Even those who thought the Indian Removal Act was a good idea might be moved to think again. When Donald Trump and Steve Bannon finish their weeks of magical thinking, these lessons may show them that some policy ideas are not practicable and are best left in the realms of campaign rhetoric. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. If you liked it, please share it. And you can contact me and listen to more, a lot more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com.
gmail.com.